Hi, everyone. Jeremy here, Walter's co-host on What Really Matters. Our sincere thanks to all of you who have left us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, which really does help us find a bigger audience and grow the show. So if you haven't already, please consider rating us and leaving a review. Thanks again. And now to this week's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist, The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. In 2030, if current projections hold, the U.S. will drill for more oil and gas than at any point in its history. And according to the New York Times, Russia and Saudi Arabia plan to do the same. They're among the world's fossil fuel giants that together are on course this decade to produce twice the amount of fossil fuels than a critical global warming threshold allows. A recent UN-backed report, which looked at 20 major fossil fuel producing countries, underscores the wide gap between world leaders' lofty promises to take stronger action on climate change and their nation's actual production plans. News or phone news? I'm afraid it's phone news. If there's anybody that's surprised that what politicians like to do is go to green summits and make absolutely heartwarming promises about really dramatic actions that they plan to take sometime in the future, uh, and then and then somehow don't get around to all of the technical, dreary little intermediary steps required to actually put anything in in, in practice. I don't know whether it's changed. The last time I looked at this, the the group that monitors compliance with climate promises, I think found no country in the world was in compliance. Um, and I, you know, I mean, for a little while before that, I think Mauritania had been or something like that. But uh, it's it really is the whole the whole thing is just this amazing. It just keeps getting postponed into the future. This looks to me very much like more of the same. All right, our second story. The war in Gaza is providing China and Russia with a valuable opportunity to garner support around the world, according to the Wall Street Journal, enabling the two repressive autocracies to harness a wave of sympathy for the Palestinians and to position themselves as champions of humanitarian values and peace. While both Moscow and Beijing maintain close relations with Israel for decades, Bibi even used billboards of himself with Vladimir Putin during the last year's election, the two powers have pointedly declined to criticize Hamas for the October 7th attack that triggered the war. Russia and China have since focused on framing the war as part of a global struggle against the United States, with Israel reduced to little more than Washington's regional pawn. News or phone news? Well, I think the word I would contest there is valuable. Um, you know, is this really a valuable opportunity? This is the sort of typical cheap propaganda thing we used to see. Those of us who remember the the Cold War, where sort of everything that came along, the Soviets found a way to blame the United States for it. Alleged attacks of diphtheria against North Korean hospitals during the Korean War, yellow rain in uh, Southeast Asia. And then I think by the end of the Cold War, the CIA was was inventing AIDS, HIV AIDS. I mean, basically, for Putin, there is no lie too ugly or too improbable uh, to try. Uh, it's sort of sad to see that China finds itself drawn to that kind of stuff. And it is one more sign that Xi Jinping's uh, government doesn't seem to be headed in a very positive direction. 
We should remember that all during the cold, well, not all during the cold war, because things changed, but certainly from the 70s on, the Soviet Union abetted the absolute worst forms of terrorism. They were the chiefs, they or their proxies and puppets like the East Germans were the chief sponsors and abettors of terrorism everywhere. So they are returning to form. What is it? Uh, the dog returns to his, like a dog returns to his vomit, the fool <laughs> returns to his folly, I believe is the biblical quote there. <laughs> I mean, one follow-up. What does it make you think of the idea, I know I've heard from a lot of Israelis over the years, that if the U.S. ever did decide to in some way junk its alliance with Israel or withdraw support as its great power backer, then a whole host of replacement great powers like Russia and China, maybe India, some others, would be like waiting in line to take its place. Did the Israelis overestimate that? No. Well, it's here's the thing. They haven't offered themselves for sale. Uh, remember, you know, Putin can flip his propaganda on a dime. So can Xi Jinping. We should never mistake these, you know, paid troll farm rants for heartfelt sentiments that will, um, you know, as Don Corleone says, it's not personal, it's business. <laughs> and so, you know, if, the, if their national interests would benefit, then they would jump on Israel like a chicken on a June bug, as we used to say in the South. But right now, Israel and the United States are sticking together, so let's make all the hay out of that that we can. I think that's the, that's the message. All right, final story of the week. After lending $1.3 trillion to developing countries, mainly for big-ticket infrastructure projects, China has shifted its focus to bailing out many of those same countries from piles of debt. The initial loans were mostly part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which Xi Jinping started in 2013 to build stronger transportation, communications, and political links in more than 150 countries. But now the two main Chinese state banks that provided most of the loans have reduced new lending, and their rescue loans have climbed to 58% of China's lending to low- and middle-income countries in 2021, up from 5% in 2013, according to the New York Times. So... China is the world's largest debt collector, Walter. News or phone news? Well, it's, you know, it's having problems collecting debts. Um, you know, the BRI looks like it was an economic failure and a political failure. Now it may even turn into a banking failure. But again, in the, in the great sea of troubles in the Chinese financial industry, the BRI loans are just a drop in the bucket. It's the domestic property market and the... Um, the debts of the Chinese local government units that, that really worry them. For that matter, they worry me. Uh, it's not good. An economic crisis in China is not good for anybody. The BRI loans were always, I thought, less actually about achieving a real foreign policy objective. You know, these fantasies of hyperlinks, almost like the Chinese Elon Musk, you know, fantasy forms of transportation girdling the world. They were really about propping up Chinese infrastructure companies who would run out of opportunities once you've paved everything in China and built a six-lane bridge over every stream that's larger than a foot wide, right? You, you, you have this huge infrastructure industry. You have all these jobs, all of these interests that are connected to them, and they, but they want to keep building more infrastructure, and so what do you do? You lend money to Zambia. And, uh, you know, Zambia, we're going to build a six-lane bridge over your river or whatever. Everybody's happy. It keeps rolling. But it was never going to pay off. 
The Zambians were never going to be able to pay it. And, and you have a kind of a problem here. What are you going to do? Repossess the bridge to nowhere? And so the Chinese are, you know, this is all, I think, sort of the consequences of an economic model that has lost its way. Uh, keeps making new loans, keeps trying to initiate projects, but it's not they're not tied enough to an economic reality. So welcome to the real world, China. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So last week, Walter, we looked at how Israel and Zionism went from being a decidedly left-wing cause in the 1940s and 50s to being an epithet in many quarters of left-wing politics around the world. It's become the kind of acme of evil. So this week, I want to talk about Israel and Zionism on the political right. So in the early 20th century in America, you've got people like William Jennings Bryan, the great commoner, and Tom Watson, the Georgia congressman who are some of the most intense anti-Semites in the country. And then if we fast forward to the second half of the 20th century, expressing your steadfast support for Israel eventually becomes like a requirement for any center-right or even most right-wing politicians, especially if they want to make it to the White House. And it just keeps going in that direction. So according to Pew in the late 1990s, about half of Republicans said they sympathize with Israel more than the Palestinians. And then by 2018, that number is nearly eight in 10 Republicans. And I imagine it might even be higher at moments like the the present one, maybe. So let's start with how did the American right start out as such a hotbed of anti-Semitism? And then what explains its evolution into, you know, maybe the strongest pro-Israel constituency of any voting bloc, like maybe in the world? All right. Well, I think we start with the concept of populism, really, rather than right wing, because, you know, was William Jennings Bryan a right winger? Most people would say he's pretty left wing, but he was a populist. And one of the things that that is often found among populism is a deep hatred for and an utter ignorance about banking and finance. You know, so picture you're a small farmer in, in Kansas Every year, you know, you you have to borrow money to plant your crop. Uh, The interest on that loan eats a lot of the profits from your crop. Then you have to ship your corn out to the East Coast on the railroad, and the freight is expensive, the freight charge. And why is the freight expensive? Well, the railroad person says it's because we have these bonds. We had to borrow the money to build the railroad. So, so, And now we have to repay the interest to the bondholders. So you feel like as this farmer, you're just getting milked by these banks who you've never seen. And maybe, though, if you go too far into debt, your farm will be foreclosed by a local bank and you'll lose everything. And do you know how the London financial market works? No. Do you understand how the gold standard affects interest rates in the U.S. based on London money markets? No. Do you understand how banks make credit decisions for railroads and other infrastructure investments? No, you do not. What you do know is that these blood-sucking leeches are making it really hard for you to do the things that you want to do. And the great thing about anti-Semitism, it is the perfect all-purpose conspiracy theory. Because obviously, if you say, okay, well, the Jews control the banks, you know, and they're greedy, they don't care anything about people like me, they're foreign, they're mysterious, 
So it's the perfect enemy. And since there aren't now and never were all that many Jews in the United States, and there were few, many fewer in 1900 than now, you know, it's, it's like it's a group you can attack without really getting a lot of other people angry at you. You know, if you had a Hispanics rule the world theory, well, that's a lot of votes. If it's the Irish are wrecking everything, that's like five states you're not going to carry. So the Jews are kind of the perfect object. And then there's a long, deep history of conspiracy thinking about the Jews and anti-Semitism that you can draw on. So it is the perfect vehicle. So the real question is, you know, having found this really happy way of solving political problems and ginning up support, why did they leave it? Why does the right become more pro-Israel? They didn't. They were not, I should say, it was not the Holocaust. Um, it was not even this, the rise of the state of Israel originally. Why were they so uninterested in the Holocaust? At the time, there, I think there's several reasons, and this has something to do too with the anti-Semitism on the right, was that in the United States and in many other countries, there was a sense of the Communist Party was basically heavily Jewish in membership and maybe even more heavily in leadership. And you had, you know, famous examples like Trotsky, who changed his name uh, from a much more Jewish-sounding name. You look at some of the early Bolsheviks in Russia, and there are a lot of Jews in the family photo album. Stalin changed all that basically by massacring the Jews in the leadership of the Communist Party. But even as that happened, the, the American Jewish community was quite prominent. And so the fact that the first atom bomb spies, that you know, the, the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, people are going, huh. And if you watched Oppenheimer, you would have seen how, how disproportionately Jewish some of these very far left-wing groups were. Well, the right is pretty horrified by communism. And it's terrified after World War II that communism might come here. You have a lot of the um, uh, more concerned, the Catholic Church was also, uh, had been like even in some cases supporting Franco and Mussolini against communists in Spain who really did, in, you know, wanted to massacre the priests and destroy the church. Not that Franco was an angel. Uh, and Mussolini also, the, the, the church supported to a, to a very large degree. So you had, the, you had a kind of a sense that the Jews were on the other side of the battle for civilization against communism. That's a problem. Israel was a very left-wing country in the early years. Um, and it was, as, as, as I mentioned in the last podcast, the DSA and all the other socialists in America are constantly pointing to Israel. See, socialism works. Socialism works. This is not calculated to make Israel more popular on the right when it's constantly being thrown in your face. Israel itself was also very secular. Then the other thing was that uh, uh, the left, the, the right was kind of didn't really want Harry Truman to get reelected in 1948. The Southern Baptist Convention actually refused to congratulate Truman on his decision to recognize Israel in May of 1948. So a lot of partisanship going on there, too. You know, so why does this begin to change? 
partly because there always was in the middle of this for a lot of, of conservative Christians in the U.S., there always was this sense that Israel retur- the people of Israel returning to the lands of the Bible was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. We've had hundreds of years in the United States where there's been a, a strain of American Protestant theology that says the ancient Hebrew prophets, if you read them carefully, predicted not just the first exile to Babylon, but a second exile that would be all over the world, and the Jews would return as history neared its climax. So these people are seeing atom bombs, they're seeing communism, they're seeing a lot of things that look like the end of the world is coming, and they also see the Jews returning to the Holy Land just like the Bible predicted 2,500 years ago. It is a tremendously validating message for Christians. It still is. And I think actually the return of the Jews to Israel has probably done more for Christianity. It's the greatest gift of the Jewish people to Christianity since Jesus Christ himself (laughs) Um, is the state of Israel, which is odd and ironic and was certainly not the intention of the founders of the state. But you know, sort of all over the world where Israel is in the news and Christian missionaries or local Christians can say, look, right here, it's there. It sort of acts in one sense as saying, well, you know, if the Muslims are right and the Koran is, where does the Koran talk about the return of the Jews, right? Look, Bible, Bible understands our world better than the Koran. So there's lots of stuff going on here. And this is having an impact. But remember, too, that the, um, in the, the boundaries that are agreed to in 1949, the Green Line, I won't say agreed to, when people just stop fighting, no one ever declares that a boundary. <laughs> um, the, the holy city and, mo- and many of the sacred Christian signs are not in Israel. And, you know, the the Jews don't really get Jerusalem itself. They get West Jerusalem, which in the time of the Bible, really, there hadn't been much there in West Jerusalem. (laughs) It's like West New York. What the heck is that? (laughs) So in the 67 war then, and this really was a turning point, Americans, and especially Americans on the right in 67, are feeling the whole world is coming apart riots in American cities, huge leftist surge, kind of like now, you know, it's uh, um, people running around, you know, America's a racist project, colonialism is, settler colonialism is all it is, the war in Vietnam is going horribly and it's dividing the country right down the middle, violence on the street between hard hats, construction workers, and anti-war Vietnam students, all of this stuff happening. It looks like the communists are really doing very well in the Cold War. The Soviet Union is approaching nuclear parity with the U.S. Everybody's still scared with the Cuba Missile Crisis, the Berlin Crisis early in the 60s. So in the middle of all of that, Israel miraculously wins the six-day war, the kind of victory Americans wish we were getting in Vietnam, right? And also, the Jews enter the, take the holy parts of Jerusalem. You now have Jews praying on the, at the temple wall. 
uh, which again for Christians is a very evocative sight, and it, it it it's a jolt. It really it makes Israel appear to the American right in a new way. Then from seventy three on, Israel is clearly on America's side in the Cold War. You have the Soviet Union strongly backing Palestinian terrorists and hijackers who the Americans didn't like then. They, uh, and, and the Palestinians are openly like, you know, anti-American. We're for, we're for the Soviet Union. We hate America. We hate Israel. All of that stuff is going on. And Israel, then as Israel gradually moves toward free market policies and becomes more religious in its own tone, so the religious parties start getting larger representation, and you start having Israeli prime ministers who, I mean, let's face it, David Ben-Gurion was, he probably didn't eat pork chops on Yom Kippur. Probably. As far as we no, know. I'm, I, <laughs> but, but, you know, he was no more observant of Judaism than, say, Ali Jenna in Pakistan or Kamal Ataturk in Turkey was of Islam. So, uh, you know, that's just a very different kind of affect. So then you have the decision really in the early 80s, American Jews start to notice that American evangelicals are more sympathetic. And instead of giving the cold shoulder, and this has always been a problem, conservative religious Jews, some of them are given not only to strong anti-Christian sentiments based on both theology and history for all kinds of understandable reasons, but to sort of actions. We just recently, there were these stories of, you know, certain Jews spitting on Christian priests or other things in the, in the streets of Jerusalem. There was an effort to rein that in as Christian-Jewish relations were improving as part of this whole thing. And you now have all kinds of groups where Jewish rabbis and Christian evangelicals are studying the Bible together. They may not agree with certain parts of, you know, each of them doesn't interpret it the same way, but they, they're trying to, you know, there's more of an interest in trying, oh, this is how you see that. Uh, and for the Christians, at least, it's often, one is often able to take new insights out of Jewish scholarship in the scriptures. It's a little bit more toxic for Jews to, to take Christian insights from the, from the scriptures sometimes. But actually you have, you know, you would then have pastors who went to Israel on, in the summer, attended some kind of an institute, and then would come home and start talking about, well, you know, the rabbis say, and there's a, and, and, and turn that into a lesson that you could use in a Christian church. So a real softening. You also had people like Billy Graham, most important and underrated uh, religious figure in, in 20th century American history. I think he's, a, he's vastly underrated as a historical figure, too. And Billy Graham was a leader of, of Israeli-American reconciliation and of Christian-Jewish reconciliation. So all of these things are going along. And I think now what you find is, in general, the same people in America who hate Israel, by and large, hate American Christians, too, or conservative American Christians. So I think if a, if a group from a Southern Baptist church came to Harvard 
yard and started handing out pamphlets on following Jesus and the moral teachings of the Bible, all right, they would get the same kind of reception that a group of Jewish students handing out, you know, uh, leaflets about the real story of Israel or why the Palestinians won't make peace. You'd see very similar dynamics. And being hated by, uh, by the same people has a way of driving people together. And this, this is connected finally to the sense that there is something American. The Ameri- we've, I've talked about this on the podcast a bit. The American way is about tolerance and is about ma- and having room for Jews to be proud Jews and also to be proud Americans. And people who hate that often hate all of America or hate a lot more about America. And so it becomes an emblem for Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, hated Ariel Sharon. (laughs) Reagan was not by any means an uncritical friend of Israel. But he, in, in Reagan's mind, support for Israel was part of being a real American, a good American. And I think that example and that rhetoric spoke very deeply to a lot of people. Let me ask you about anti-Semitism on the right in in 2023. I think you've got two versions, or at least two versions. You've got the kind of Candace Owen types. I fortunately don't know quite enough about her to say this with any confidence, but I, I think you'd call it the kind of you know contemporary version of the populist or nativist anti-Semitism on the right. And then you have what people call the new right. And this includes, I think, both the post-Christian illiberal types and also the integralists. I think this is almost exclusively an intellectual phenomenon. But among some new right intellectuals, you have this version of anti-Semitism where Jews are associated with what they see as like the ills of capitalism and the failures of pluralism and liberalism and so on. What What do you make of them? Well, first of all, they're not very new. This is William Jennings Bryan, and in fact, they <laughs> they will quite consciously go back to William Jennings Bryan and the old populace. You know, the Tom Turnipseed, and uh, this is an old form of American activism, and it comes again. People who don't either don't understand the financial system or the way capitalism works, or think they can advance their intellectual and political careers by ginning up anger among other people who don't understand it, while they themselves are smiling cynically to themselves. Um, this is an old figure. We've seen a lot of it. But yeah, this um, the kind of populism that wants to draw a circle around the and build a wall around an endangered remnant of the really good people and exclude the bad people. And it's also a way to distinguish them, I think, from the older generation of Republicans who were very pro-Israel. Never underestimate the desire of young people to look different from their parents. So, you know, okay, I'm going to be a conservative like mom and dad, but I'm not going to be the kind of conservative mom and dad were. And in the same way, actually, I think a younger generation of evangelicals often picks on being pro-Palestinian as a way to signal their difference between our generation of modern, forward-looking, fresh, new-thinking people and those boring old fuddy-duddies that gave me birth and brought me up. And so, you know, I think this is, it's, it's partly a branding exercise. I don't want to trivialize it. 
and I don't trivialize the potential for harm that, that it can bring, but I w- there's nothing new in here. As for the integralists, which I suspect many of our readers are not, our listeners aren't quite sure what we're talking about when we talk about integralists. These are basically people who look back to sort of medieval and early modern Catholic ideas of sort of building a a unified Christian community. Some people have used the term Christianist for this, which I think seems a little strong, but nevertheless, and it's rooted in the thought, you know. People can derive it from the thought of Thomas Aquinas and some other very well-known theologians, but in this kind of thought, the state has a positive duty to ensure that the one true religion, i.e. my religion, uh, the integralists would say, um, is the only one that's established. If others are allowed, it's because we're being generous and tolerating them, and yes, we'll tolerate private expression of other religions. There's a million different flavors in it. But this strain of thought in Europe and here for hundreds of years has resisted the idea of equal citizenship that would include Jews, atheists, even Protestants, because this dilutes the essential integralist Catholic nature of of the state. Again, I would really want to say this is a sliver among Catholics, and especially in the United States. This is not representative of American Catholic thinking en masse, but there are some people under the stresses of modern life, worried about where the church is going, worried about where the country is going, who have gravitated to this, and the and the sort of disinclination to grant full equality to Jews in, in certain ways is inherent in the integralist package, I think. I got to ask one final question, since we've now covered both left-wing progressive anti-Semitism in the last episode and now anti-Semitism on the right. You know, if, you, if you'd asked me before October 7th, which I thought was kind of the, the bigger or more serious threat, I, as aware as I think I was of, you know, anti-Semitism on the left, I would have almost certainly said the anti-Semitism on the right seemed like a, a, bigger, a bigger challenge. Now I'm not so sure. What do you think? Not that it's a competition. Yeah, I know. Well, which am I wor- more worried about, the cancer in my left lung or the cancer in my right lung? <laughs> uh, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard to choose. Um, I guess what I would say is that the anti-Semitism on the left is a more immediate threat to the standing in place of American Jews today because it is more prevalent in some of the institutions and places where American Jews have put down roots and where they're part of it. So, you know, the idea that the Ivy League is becoming a, a, a toxic or difficult place for Jewish students and professors, unless they're willing to sort of swear the anti-Zionist oath, that's going to affect people directly. It, it affects Jewish professionals work, working in government, working in hospitals, all over. So I think in terms of what's going to create the most problems now for American Jews, I think this is the bigger thing. And especially if you add, you know, what is the phrase they use in France, Islamo-Gauchiste, sort of the left, the weird blend of the Islamic religious right and the American or Western secular left. That adds a kind of a street violence element to it, so you have 
the professional discrimination, marginalization, uh, hostility with the added danger of, of violence, physical violence. Um, the anti-Semitism on the right is a problem, but in general, you know, I mean, I don't want to shock you, Jeremy, but rural Alabama is not a, a great haven for American Jews, nor are there a lot of American Jews who wish they had, just wish they had the guts to move to the Ozarks. Okay, they really, they know it's the right place to live. They're just too chicken to go. Okay. <laughs> they won't let us in. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so a bunch of people that you don't want to have anything to do with who live in places where you hope never to go, um, it's a less immediate problem. Politically, morally, in terms of the strength of the country, it's a big problem. Uh, which is worse which is more dangerous, to some degree, I'd say a lot depends on Donald Trump. If Donald Trump were to make anti-Semitism a part of his core appeal, it would, you know, you could see a lot of people just following him on this as they follow him on a lot of other things. Um, I think it's been a, it's been a great, one of the few completely unmixed blessings of Donald Trump's career that actually he he hasn't done it and if anything in office he deployed his friendship for Israel as one way to marginalize the people on the right that were more radical than he was so that you know so that they couldn't make inroads into his appeal to his base now if he continues on that trajectory and sort of seals off the anti-Semitic right to the far fringe of the Trump movement and then outside the Trump movement, in a way, he'll be doing a, a great service of marginalizing that kind of anti-Semitism. On the other hand, a Trump administration would bring the anti-Semitism of the left to new peaks of intensity just because they'll, they'll be so angry, worried, you know, stirred up. That's, that's what he does. And ultimately, I come back to what I say in, in my book, The Ark of a Covenant, that the strength of anti strength or weakness of anti-Semitism in American life is a pretty good marker for the health of American society. When our country is doing well, anti-Semitism, as well as many other kinds of hate, tends to get pushed to the margins, have less influence, less visibility. When things are going badly, when people feel the country's headed in the wrong direction, they're worried and they're frightened, um, anti-Semitism and many other kinds of hate swim to the surface. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. Veterans Day tomorrow, Walter, and at least some of our listeners will get to take some time off from work, at least I hope. So give us your favorite war film of all time, the one everyone should watch this Veterans Day. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great ones. You know, Saving Private Ryan, I think, is a, is a really good one. Thin Red Line is, a, is another thing of World War II films. A film that people maybe haven't seen that I think is is a really good one or that fewer people may have seen is 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. It's a film based on the Doolittle Raid, uh, which was early in World War II in order to raise morale in America. After Pearl Harbor, when we're on the back foot in the Pacific, 
um, the Navy does this amazing operation of training uh, a group of flyers to fly from aircraft carriers over Japan. They don't have enough fuel to get back to the carriers. They actually have to land in China and may not have enough fuel to make it out of the Japanese zone of China. And the, the film takes it from the decision to do the raid through the training, through the raid itself, to the various things that happen to the flyers in China. And it's a great story, but it's also a story of, of American power, of the different groups of people. Some are from the South, North, different ethnic groups. But then also that in China, they're often rescued by people who had worked with Christian missionaries or had other reasons for special ties to the United States. It's a good film to watch, and I think it reminds us of some of the values that have made so many people in history willing to assume the risks of service in the U.S. Armed Forces. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom, and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. 